Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. The FT Why the government's pensions guidance guarantee might not be quite what it seems. The UK's best-known fund manager is set to start over. We look at whether investors should buy in and why the world's riskiest stock markets have outperformed just about everything else. Welcome to The Money Show, the FT's most downloaded podcast. I'm Jonathan Ely, and I'll be giving you all the money news this week in downloadable form, with my FT colleagues David Oakley. Hello. And Joe Cumbo. Hello. Plus our special studio guest this week, Jason Hollands of Best Invest. Hello there. Now, cast your mind back a month or two and you'll remember that one of George Osborne's radical proposals for an overhaul of the pension system was that every saver should get individual face-to-face advice at the point of retirement. Now, it very soon became clear that advice actually meant guidance, which isn't quite the same thing. But ever since the budget, the pensions industry has been abuzz with speculation about who is going to provide this guidance, on what terms, And, most importantly, who is going to pay for it? There's also a lot of worried chatter in the industry about the timescale. Pension providers have been given little more than a year to prepare for some game-changing reforms. Of course, pension providers and insurers are renowned for warning about how long it takes to implement changes, even simple ones. Many regard it as self-interest. But it's not just the industry that is fretting about getting everything ready for April 2015. Even the government isn't 100% sure that the guaranteed guidance regime it promised will be the finished article once it starts in April next year. Joe Cumbo is here to tell us more. Joe, can you remind us about the background to this guidance guarantee? I mean, it's really all about annuities and decumulation, isn't it? Yes. In March, George Osborne shocked everybody by announcing that from April 2015, you will no longer be forced or required to buy an annuity or go into drawdown. In in fact, you can do whatever you like with your pension pot. You can take the cash lump sum and buy a a Lamborghini if you're fortunate enough to have um, a very big pension pot. To support all the increased freedoms and choices that people will have from April 2015, the government has said that what they will offer is a guidance guarantee, which means that from April 2015, anyone 55 or over will be offered a conversation given guidance on their options in retirement, given that um, their choices are going to be far more complex from April 2015. Some doubt is emerging as the government busily consults on these reforms about how deliverable 
uh, that promise is going to be. What's the latest on that? Well, when George Osborne announced this new guarantee, it all sounded great. I mean, you'd have more choice, there'd be freedom and there'd be someone there to sort of hold your hand and, and support you through those options. But what we're finding now is that there's still a lot to be done sorting out the basics of what form the conversation will take, what will be said, who's going to talk to you. I mean, there is debate about how independent these people would be. Consumer groups want the the money guiders, as they're called, to be completely divorced from the sales process. And indeed, who is going to pay for the ultimate cost of providing this guidance? Now, the government says the new duty will be on pension providers and trust-based pension schemes, and the advice must be delivered free to the consumer. So it's just like the NHS. You won't pay anything for it, but ultimately someone's going to have to pick up the tab. And what about the reforms more generally? I mean, the initial reaction after the budget was broadly supportive, but some doubts have been creeping in recently. It is coming back to the guidance because the retirement landscape has changed significantly. Prior to the budget, the main thing that people did was they got to 65 and most people bought an annuity from April 2015. This isn't going to be something that you are forced to do or required to do. You will have more choice. So between now and then we're hearing that there's going to be a whole raft of products developed to to fill that space and I guess because there's uncertainty about the types of products and indeed who will be selling them there is concerns that people will end up buying unsuitable products or uh, risky products etc and be left impoverished in retirement. So this guidance guarantee and the form it takes from April next year will be really crucial to helping people understand what their options are and, and keeping them on the right path to buying the right products or indeed making the right decisions. Joe, thanks very much. There's more detail about the evolution of the government's pension proposals and what they might mean for you in this weekend's FT Money, which you can read as part of the weekend FT or online at ft.com forward slash money. And of course, you can read on mobile devices like tablets and Kindles too. Still to come on the show, should you invest in frontier markets? They've outperformed virtually everything else, but they are risky. First, though, let's look at a big event in the investing world this week, the launch of Neil Woodford's new fund management venture. Mr Woodford is financial royalty. His track record as Invesco Perpetual brought him legions of admirers and helped Invesco accumulate billions of pounds of funds under management. His long-term value-investing style and refusal to buy into short-term hype and fads also won him admirers amongst politicians and academics. Last October, Mr Woodford announced he'd be leaving Invesco to start his own company. In March, he handed over the management of the main Invesco funds to his successor, Mark Barnett. And this week, Woodford Investment Management opens for business. What sort of fund will it be? What will it invest in? And will it attract the same sort of following that the Invesco funds did? David Oakley, the FT's investment correspondent, has secured a rare interview with the man himself, and he joins us now. David, welcome back onto the show. A couple of months ago, you went to meet Mr Barnett. Uh, Now you're off to see the big man himself. But what do we already know about the venture that he's launching this week? First, Woodford plans to start simple. One equity income fund on top of his segregated uh, mandates from St James Place. And his approach will be, I think, quite similar to his approach at Invesco, which will simply be to pick cheap stocks or cheapish stocks for the long term. I think he will 
continue to avoid the fancy stuff like tech and, and banks with CDOs on their books. The final thing, you'll be a little bit further up the River Thames. He's going to Oxford from Invesco in Henley. Now, many people have pointed out that Mr Woodford's returns trailed off a bit over the past uh, five years. And in fact, over the most recent period, I think Mark Barnett has actually beaten him. Has he lost his touch, do you think? Or was it just that his funds were very defensively positioned at a time when cyclical shares were doing very well? I don't think he's lost his touch. I think you're right. I think markets go up and down. There are cycles, and, and, and so do fund managers' businesses. He hasn't produced the very big returns he did a decade ago, but that probably is about the ebb and flow of markets and business in general. Having said that, there are some financial advisors who do feel that the poorer performance is slightly down to the size of his funds. The end of last year, uh, his two flagship income funds were valued at about £23 billion in terms of assets under management. And that was considered too much by some people because it cuts back on flexibility. He wasn't able to make the gains on the small to medium company stocks that did so well for him in 2003-2004. So actually this time round, if you set aside St James Place segregated funds, which he manages, which are probably in the region of about $3.7 his income fund will probably be about $1 billion, which means that some people think Woodford will do a lot better this time round with a smaller fund. Now, at the start of this week, Invesco, his former employer, was fined um, £18 million by the UK's financial regulator. In fact, it was the biggest fine ever handed out to a, an asset manager. What was all that about and was Mr Woodford implicated in that at all? Woodford was implicated in the sense that it did involve his funds. However, the fine, although very large, there is a feeling that this was really a technical breach down to oversight rather than serious subterfuge. So I think a lot of investors feel fairly relaxed about this. And critically, Invesco paid back the £5.3 million that investors lost through the derivative positions that weren't disclosed in the simplified prospectus. And I think that has taken the heat off Woodford and, and Invesco. And finally, David, the uh, Invesco funds that Mr Woodford managed have already seen uh, quite a lot of money taken out. I mean, almost as soon as he announced he was off, um, uh, the money began to flow out of those funds. What's the feeling in the industry now? Are people expecting more money to follow him out of those funds and through the door at his new uh, venture now that there is finally something to invest in? I think there definitely will be more more money following Woodford. That, that, or, or certainly that's the opinion of, of financial advisors and other investors. Whether it's from Invesco, uh, that's difficult to say. They have already lost about £8 billion. Not all to Woodford, has to be said. I don't think they will necessarily lose any more money to Woodford. However, I think as Woodford's fund starts up, he's going on the road for three weeks to meet financial advisors. If he has a good start, um, I think more money will flock to him. Estimates from certain people in the industry, Mark Dampier at uh, Hargreaves Lansdowne, has spoken about figures in the region of £10 billion. It would not greatly surprise anybody if Woodford was able to attract up to £10 billion. However, whether he will do that or not is perhaps a more interesting question. Will he actually limit the size of the fund in the hope that that will produce better returns uh, than he managed in the last, last five or so years at Invesco? We've also got Jason Hollands from Best Invest in the studio. Jason, will you 
do you think be recommending Woodford's funds or are you are you going to <clears> wait and see? Well, complete our due diligence before having a final view on it, but it's fair to say we've backed him in the past over many, many, many years. I think, you know, the investment style is going to be very similar, essentially, to what he'd previously done at Vesco Perpetual. And indeed, today it's been announced that a few ex-colleagues on the analyst side are going to be joining him. I wouldn't overstate the, the issues to do with fund size. This is probably going to be a pretty big fund on day one. He's always largely been investing in big, liquid, global companies, and he's one of the few managers who has proven his ability to keep performing with large assets under management. Do bear in mind that there are a number of good up-and-coming names out there. Uh, so whilst there's always a temptation to follow the star, equally, you know, this is a time not to ignore some of the up-and-coming fund managers who've perhaps been overlooked in the past, people like Thomas Moore at Standard Life, Matt Hudson at Schroeder's, both of whom have been putting in great numbers. It's likely it will look favourably on the fund on the basis of what we know about Neil and his track record if he's doing the same thing. But, of course, that doesn't necessarily mean you should sell out of Mark Barnett's funds because, actually, Mark Barnett has great numbers in his own right. He's worked for a long period of time with Neil Woodford, so they're very similar ways of, uh, of looking at things. And, actually, to be honest... If those funds end up a lot smaller, that's probably a good thing for the investors who stick in them. OK, now you can read the full interview with Neil Woodford, one of only two interviews given to UK print media, in this weekend's FT Money, where we also dissect that 25-year track record going back to 1988. Don't forget that the weekend FT is on sale on both Saturday and Sunday, and that you can read online at any time, ft.com forward slash money. We're always keen to hear your views too. You can leave comments at the foot of articles on our website or you can email us directly. The address is money at ft.com. On to our final item for today. Emerging markets have been a poor investment over the last few years. Countries like China, India, Brazil, Turkey and Indonesia have been hit hard by concerns about the end of central bank stimulus, trade deficits, lower commodity prices and, in the case of China, slowing rates of growth. The recent turmoil in Ukraine hasn't helped either. But frontier markets have done very well. These are a stage behind emerging markets, markets like Kenya or Jordan. The MSCI Frontier Markets Index has beaten most developed markets over the past year and has thrashed its emerging markets equivalent. But of course, we all know, past performance isn't a guide to the future. Frontier markets now look quite expensive and they are risky and volatile. So, should you invest? Let's turn to Jason again. Jason, why is it that uh, frontier markets have done so well, yet emerging markets, which aren't really that different, have done so poorly? I think at the core, a lot of this is down to the fact that they are simply less open and therefore they are less reactive to the ebb and flow of international capital. In the recent years, because of quantitative easing, that's driven markets around the globe. So what we've seen is that as uh, investors have worried about China, and have started to think about tapering in, in the US, is you've seen huge flows of capital away from emerging markets and into back into developed markets. And that's driven developed markets, stock market returns up, and that's obviously hampered the returns on emerging markets. But because the frontier markets uh, tend to be less open to international capital and have more restrictions, those factors have played less a role. So they're less correlated generally to other, other markets. And the other factor is actually to date, about half of the frontier market index is actually accounted for by the Middle East. 
These may be markets with relatively restrictive capital markets, but actually they have quite strong balance sheets. They actually have quite high GDP per capita. So they've actually proved quite robust, whereas one of the concerns that's hit emerging markets are worries about the level of external debt. Now, you mentioned the exposure to the Middle East there. A couple of those frontier market countries have done so well, in fact, economically, that they are going to be promoted, uh, if you like, to emerging market status. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Well, that's right. I mean, this was flagged and announced some while ago that two key frontier markets, Qatar and the United Arab Emirates, would be upgraded to the emerging market indices from this month. Whilst that will have a relatively modest impact on the emerging market indices, together they'll probably represent about 0.7% of the index, the impact on frontier market indices is huge because these two countries account for about a third of the MSCI frontiers index. On one level, it could make it an even more riskier place to invest. Okay, and just as Qatar and the UAE have been promoted to emerging status, so there has been talk of uh, South Korea and Taiwan being promoted from emerging markets to developed markets. And in fact, MSCI has been consulting on this for quite some time now. How likely do you think that is to happen? And what effects would it have, given that Taiwan and South Korea also account for a very big chunk of the emerging markets? Well, I I think there is a reasonable chance this will happen. And again, for the emerging market indices, that would be a a major impact. Together, they're about 28% of the emerging market index. And indeed, Samsung, that alone is about 3.7% of the entire emerging market index. So it would have a big change in, in the shape of the emerging market indices. Now, finally, frontier markets have had a great run, but uh, as we've discussed, the shape of that uh, index is changing. And uh, also, they look a bit pricey now in terms of earnings, uh, whereas emerging markets look cheap but have performed poorly. So which would you invest in right now? Well, I think uh, just a couple of things there. One is I think that the priciness of frontier markets is partly, again, a factor of Qatar and UAE. Obviously, the markets have known for nearly a year now that they would be moving up the indices. So some investors have adjusted and started buying it in the head of that. They've been trading you know, at quite a big premium to frontier markets generally, and that's affected average valuations across the index. But also emerging market equities do look cheap on the surface of it. They've been completely pummeled over the last 12 months. And for someone looking to invest for the long term, are starting to look attractive, albeit could be volatile for some time yet. So the real answer is actually they are quite different categories of investment. Overseas ownership of frontier markets is about 20 billion US dollars, but um, the emerging markets have about a trillion US dollars invested. So they are very different. I'd invest in both. I think there's probably still a bit more turmoil to come in the emerging markets. So a better buying opportunity may await, or indeed you might want to start dipping your toe in through you know a series of investments over the coming months. Thanks very much, Jason. There's more on emerging versus frontier markets in this week's FT Money, and Marion Somerset Webb takes a look at Russian shares, which are now ridiculously cheap, but come with some very obvious and very big risks. We also look at fund ratings. Should you pay attention to Lipper or Morningstar or Citywire or Trustnet? Are they all measuring the same things or in the same way? My column looks at IPOs as Saga gears up for a float and the controversy over Royal Mail rumbles on. John Lee considers the impact that takeovers can have on small companies and we find out how interior designer Zeev Aram made his millions. We're always keen to hear from readers and listeners. If you want to let us know about a hot topic or share your thoughts, you can do so via Twitter. The handle is FT Money. 
or you can go online. The address is ft.com forward slash money or you can email us. The address for that is money at ft.com. We will be back next week, but for now, it's goodbye from me, David, Joe, and our special studio guest, Jason Hollands. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. And if you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. It streamlines your processes to make your business more efficient, which makes you less busy. Mail checks, invoices, legal documents, and everything you need to keep your business running with Stamps.com. Seamlessly connect with every major marketplace and shopping cart. Schedule package pickups and see your cheapest and fastest shipping options from different carriers. With rates up to 89% off USPS and UPS rates. And with the Stamps.com mobile app you can take care of mailing and shipping wherever you are. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Sign up with code PROGRAM for a 4-week trial, plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com. Code PROGRAM.